Welcome back, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And it's the holiday season. Do, do, do. I don't know if that's the right beat, but... <laughs> a whoop-dee-doo, a dickery dock. <laughs> that's not my Christmas song, so... What is your Christmas song? The fuck if I know. <laughs> is it uh, Justin Bieber's album? I'll be under the mistletoe. No. Shining with you. That was never me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was me either, but I just know it because you can't get away from it at any time of year. Ugh. We do need to take a moment, though, now that we're through Thanksgiving. Praise God. Praise God. Not that I had a bad Thanksgiving at all, because I had lovely visits with family that I don't get to see very often, but I very much appreciated how the internet carried me through certain very relatable things, particularly the TikToks of people pairing hilarious audios with like adult millennial siblings sitting around the table being like if my family was heard saying this in public we would be canceled yes i sent a few videos to my sister like i was listening to our dad say things that would get him canceled in two oh seconds oh my god 100 percent. and it's just like a four second clip of siblings making eye contact while somebody you know that person whoever they are picture them in your mind send them you love know. and light <laughs> that says that thing and you're just like Ooh. you just gotta take all I'm saying is we'd make a good reality top. family, reality oh, TV. my God. Indeed. Overall, though, lovely Thanksgiving. Good food. Now in full, yes, good food. Now transitioning to Christmas mode. Yes. Yes. Even though that stresses me out way more than, than Thanksgiving oh. does. Like the gift giving and the decorating, just the all of it, or is there yeah, anything? Yeah, all of per- it. Like, mm. all of it just stresses me out. Yeah. I like decorating, but I have a one-year-old who likes undecorating. You do. So. You do. So my house is very... It's a minimal plain. Christmas. Yeah, it's very minimalist, <laughs> and I'm not a minimalist, so that's kind of weird. But it works. It's just a season. You will get through it. <laughs> I And I hate the cold. Yeah, same. Oh, I hate the cold. I would really like to have the over-the-top Christmas with all of the, like, decorations, everything, but experience it somewhere actually tropical, like where you could be on a beach in your bikini. Because where I grew up in the South, it was always like, it was maybe like it was shorts weather on christmas day but it wasn't like you could actually go swim in right. the ocean it would be like, like you can't st- enjoy it yeah you would still freeze your ass off so you still were kind of in that weird like it doesn't feel christmasy but it yeah. also doesn't feel like i could go lay on a beach and, and i that's don't like one that. thing i do appreciate about southern illinois weather like it does feel like christmas yeah although when you're an adult, snow isn't as magical. <laughs> yeah, that's true. you have to true. drive through it. And... After a few hours of it falling, you just mm. need it to be gone. But y'all aren't here to hear us uh, talk about all of that. No. No. Although, thank you for bearing with us. Thank you. You came to hear about a murder. Mm. And we have a truly 
horrible story for you today to kick off the holiday season. The crazy ex-girlfriend or boyfriend is by no means an uncommon phrase, Caitlin, would you say, like commenting about, oh, my crazy ex, whatever. Yeah, I don't have a crazy... I was probably the crazy one. <laughs> so I'll I'll take that. However, I would not put you in the category of this mm. crazy ex. No. Even though we've all either had or known or been someone whom we would probably <laughs> give that label. But it's usually not because we believe they were capable of murder. Like maybe keying a car or slashing tires. Caitlin's looking like maybe I was capable of murder. I wanted to. Not murder. Mm. <laughs> but even if you thought about it, you did not act on it. No. There's a quite a big chasm you have to cross between point A to point yeah, B. Yeah, I did not jump that. No. But today we're going to be talking about somebody uh, that not just jumped that. I feel like they launched mm. across that. Pole vaulted. Pole vaulted. <laughs> and we're not going to call them the crazy X. We're going to call them the absolutely unhinged X. Today, we are bringing you the tragic and terrifying story of a bizarre love square because we can't actually call it a triangle because at one point it does involve four individuals. That does make a square. It does. Thank you. Also a rectangle. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to be talking about the brutal killing of 26-year-old Alex Woodworth and the unhinged ex who genuinely believed that they were going to get away with his murder. Lights out, campers. Oh, man, the mountains call my number On the cold and muddy afternoon of March 23, 2018, a farmer named Don Sipple had just sat down at around 4.15 p.m. to enjoy a quiet dinner when a commotion erupted on his front porch. Don owned a huge dairy farm way out in the boonies of Springbrook, Wisconsin, about 15 miles outside of the bustling city of Eau Claire. So it wasn't like folks were just dropping by his house all the time. When Don opened the door, to his horror, he found a small young woman shivering in a pair of drenched socks and no shoes, with her curly brown hair plastered to her face and who looked like she'd quite literally burst off the screen of a slasher film. Her orange crew neck sweater was jaggedly torn open from neck to waist and her jeans were filthy and looked like they had been slashed to ribbons. She was smeared head to toe in the dirty caramel-colored Wisconsin mud Don's stomach flopped as he realized. There was also a good deal of dried blood around her mouth and what appeared to be blood smeared into her tattered clothing. To Don, she was clearly in shock and was frantically pleading to be let in and given help. The kind-hearted dairy farmer did not hesitate before ushering the shivering young woman inside, and as soon as Don had wrapped her in a blanket and sat her on his couch to get warm, the following call was placed to 911. I'm County 911. What's the address of the emergency? This is Don Sipple calling, and I have a, a young lady that just came to my house, and somebody attacked her, and she needs a doctor or 
Her clothes are all torn and... Okay, what is the address you're located at? What? What is the address you are at? E-7614, 430th Avenue. Okay. And is she injured? Yeah, she's injured. Her, her mouth is kind of uh, got some blood around it, and her clothes are all torn. Okay. And she's by herself? She's by herself. She walked to my house here just recently. Okay. And can you ask her what her name is? Just hold on a second. Okay. What's your name, ma'am? What? You don't know? She's in kind of bad shape. She just says she don't know. Okay, let me put you on hold. Do not hang up. I'm going to start some help, okay? Sure. So, Caitlin, I know you and I now have both listened to that call and with no context of the wider story that's going to unfold. Mm -hmm. When you first hear that call, you find it to be very, I mean, heartbreaking and traumatizing. I feel like you feel a lot of empathy for both Don because he clearly is shaken up Mm -hmm. and just trying to do the right thing. Yes. And, and he's, you know, I mean, he's uh, just eating and all yes. of a sudden a battered woman shows up on his doorstep. Yes. And she, even though you can't clearly hear her, you can hear the noises that she's making in the background. She's Weeping very, and- yes, sounds shaky and very traumatized. And Don Sipple is picking up on that energy. He's like, I've been around a long time and I've never seen anything like this. And I find it interesting that even though he's not accustomed to that type of situation Mm -hmm. that he was like she wanted me to drive her to the hospital but I didn't think that I should Mm -hmm. and as we will go on to see I think that him actually doing that which was absolutely the right thing to do because her life clearly was not in imminent danger Mm -hmm. from her like bleeding out or something yeah that he absolutely did the right thing and that in a lot of ways, I think that it contributes to this story coming to the ending that it should have. Yeah. But, yeah. So, I I just found that 911 call very fascinating. And I appreciate that the operator is being very helpful. He's not making it worse by asking the same fucking question over a hundred times. He remains calm. He quickly gets the police and EMTs on the way, but we have listened to 911 calls in the past that are enraging because they just continue to ask the same stupid question over and over when the person is begging for help and they're like, well, yeah, or they like question the person on the phone instead of just being like, it's going to be okay. I just You're doing the right thing. We are sending help. Love how uninterested they all sound every time. <laughs> They're all like detached. And like I, I understand why and whatnot. But he's like, yeah, can you tell me her age? How uh-huh. old do you think she might be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. cool. No. Uh-huh, you did the right thing. On the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're inconveniencing me, but 
and that's and that, just what they sound like and they all have an incredibly heavy regional accent depending where they are like yeah, the Wisconsin he had more of an accent than Don did yes but then cut to the Michael Peterson 911 call where he's like where no he the lady is like calm down sir <laughs> calm down <laughs> He's like, how can I be calm? Calm down. And that's like what she spends half the call <laughs> So needless to say, this was a better 911 call. Yes. And also don't just tell somebody to calm down. That does like not the, help. <clears throat> complete opposite. Absolutely not. Oh. No, I lost my spot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So, initially, it's difficult for the police to ask the young woman when they arrive any sort of questions because, like you guys just heard in the 911 recording, she's very scattered and weepy and shaky and she looks pretty brutalized and apparently she can't even remember her own name but there is one name that she keeps repeating over and over to law enforcement specifically someone she keeps asking for the police to call and that person is Jason Mangle whenever the police ask her where she is hurt she just repeats all over and she also says that she can't remember anything about what happened to her except that she remembers being afraid of someone named Alex. Interesting. Now, in addition to these trickles of information, police notice a few more things about the young woman's appearance. She has three fresh and painful-looking, though not very deep, cuts on her hand. She also has scrapes and abrasions on her skin beneath the shredded fabric of her jeans near her underwear and scratches on her thigh and jaw. Most bizarre though, on her forearm, the word boy appeared to have been crudely carved into her skin with a sharp object. Ugh. When questioned about these injuries, particularly the word boy cut into her arm, all the young woman could tell them was Alex did it. At this point, with all the information they had, police 100% believed that they were dealing with the situation of a victim having survived a bizarre and brutal attack, who was now so traumatized and her memory so garbled that she couldn't even remember her own name. It's a little unclear when exactly police speak to him, but they are able to place a call to this Jason Mingle, person that the young woman keeps begging them to reach out to, and another couple of puzzle pieces emerge. The young woman who showed up at Don Sipple's doorstep is named Ezra McCandless. And the Alex she mentioned when she said Alex did it is 26-year-old Alex Woodworth. Jason Mingle had been seriously dating and living with Ezra, but the two of them had been broken up and separated for the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. I do feel the need to point out here, even though it's not that big of a deal, there are conflicting sources on what Alex's age was at this time. Some people say absolutely he was 26. Some people say 24. And so mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, 
I don't know, that would mean that people are disagreeing on when his actual birthday was, but most things I saw said 26, so that's what we're going to go with. I mean, doesn't really yeah. matter in the grand scheme of things. But I also find it interesting right here that when, you know, they believe that they're dealing with a victim mm -hmm. immediately... I do think that we need, it's important to note that, like, she's immediately believed in this instance without question as being a victim. And I think that that has a lot to do with her appearance mm -hmm. as a seemingly looking upper middle class. I would say well off. Yes, a uh, white woman, and that there's no question, oh, obviously she must have been the victim mm -hmm. of some sort of brutal attack. And it does look bad when you Google the photos of, you can easily find them, like evidence photos of her jeans, her sweater. They are wrecked. Mm -hmm. I mean, ripped open, muddy, disgusting. So if you see somebody well, like that showing wounds, up on your like door, the, the carving. Yes. Oh, yes. And you know she would have had like mud and blood mm -hmm. all over her. She would have been looking rough and she's like not remembering anything. I would also be like, holy shit, there's something really bad that happened to this person right. and you just want to get to the bottom of it. So I think Everybody at this point is on the track that any sane person wanting to help would be on. Mm -hmm. Like they see the situation for what it is appearing to be. Yes, yes. And they're taking actionable steps to get to the bottom mm -hmm. of it. Especially now that they have some names. And with a seemingly brutalized victim in their care who claims her attack was at the hands of this Alex person, police figured they need to track down Alex Woodworth ASAP. So over the next few hours, police leave no stone unturned to find Alex, but no one in his family or any of his friends have heard from him. He wasn't anywhere that they knew Alex liked to hang out, he wasn't at home, and he wasn't at the coffee shop where he worked. It was like he had vanished off of the face of the earth to law enforcement. But keep in mind that all of this is happening over a matter of hours, not days or weeks. So other than the police at this point, no one is frantically looking for Alex yet. He was a grown man with his own place and job. But his lack of whereabouts became increasingly concerning as the hours ticked by. And his phone would go straight to voicemail. And nothing the police looked into was leading them in a clear direction to find him. So, they made their way back to the closest thing to a lead that they had, Don Stipple's farm, where Ezra first made her appearance. While driving along the muddy country road, still finding nothing, police took a chance and drove through an unlocked gate onto an even more isolated dirt road on Don's property. The road was so muddy that they actually stopped their police car just inside the gate so that they wouldn't risk getting it stuck in the mud, and they got out to look around on foot. When they spotted some footprints that appeared to travel all the way 
down the road. And it's unclear here if those footprints were pointing towards the gate or away from it. I don't think it was that distinct, but they could just tell that they were tracks of some sort that were going from one direction to the other, whether it was away from them or towards them. Either way, hoping that this meant they were finally onto something, the police followed the path of the tracks along the muddy road and up the side of a hill when they spotted a vehicle further off a ways that appeared to be stuck in the mud with something partially hanging out of the back seat door and touching the ground, but they couldn't quite make it out. A closer look with a pair of binoculars made their blood run cold when they realized that it was a body. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, because remember, all of this is happening in the matter of hours, Ezra is having a full examination performed by hospital staff and ER doctors, and an ER doctor makes some of... Ezra is having a full examination performed by hospital staff, and an ER doctor makes some observations that police had not caught in the initial whirlwind of chaos on Don Sipple's farm, and believing, understanding why, that they were looking for a dangerous predator whom a victim had barely escaped from with her life. The doctor noticed that Ezra's various cuts and scratches, once her tattered clothing had been cut away and the mud and smeared blood washed off of her body, were actually quite superficial, to the point where they would be almost completely healed just a couple of days later. The three cuts on her hands, which appeared to be horrific due to the initial amount of blood, were actually completely superficial. And most bizarrely, the word boy, which no one knew yet what the fuck that was about, (laughs) was noted by the doctor that had been self-inflicted, which I mean... Ew. That makes my skin crawl. Because the letters were facing in the opposite direction than they would be if they had been carved by another person. And even if they had contorted themselves and Ezra to write them the direction they were facing, the cuts were far too clean and, again, superficial for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. This immediately made hella sense to me because I have a tattoo on the inside of my forearm that when I hold out my arm and I look at it, it reads in the direction of letters on a page that I would be reading like if it or yes that I would if I were to start writing them on my inner forearm that would be the location I would start in the direction they would be writing but for another person to do that they would actually have to be reached completely around me in like a bear hug position over my shoulder or around my waist holding your arm directly in front of you and then like writing it and you are in a very unnatural position to do so whereas if somebody is it just you can break down all of the like weird reasons why it doesn't make sense but it was so obviously like hmm I think it was a combination of that and how superficial it was and then how to me him noting how or her I don't it could have been a female ER doctor how clean the cuts were that 
their hackles immediately went up that that was a sauce. And at the same time that this ER doc was getting a real sus about Ed- Ezra's victim status, police had descended on the vehicle stuck in the mud on Don's dairy farm, a white Chevy Impala with hand-drawn artwork on the hood and roof. The body hanging out of the back seat with its head on the ground was confirmed to belong to 26-year-old Alex Woodworth. Alex had been stabbed a total of 16 times in the head, neck, and groin, and was pronounced dead at the scene. Oddly, there wasn't much blood at all inside of the actual car, just a few splatters and what appeared to be a muddy footprint on the ceiling. But the earth surrounding where Alex's head was touching was practically black from being drenched with so much blood. So now it goes without saying that the police found themselves afflooring it back to the hospital. Now, this is pure unapologetic speculation, but Caitlin, at this point, I like to imagine <laughs> the ER doctor is like, giddy with what he has realized that like oh my god this bitch is not a maybe not a victim it looks like she did this to herself but he's probably like fuck they're never gonna believe me what am I gonna say but the cops are also on the way back being like (laughs) oh my god something is suspicious but they can't say anything to the doctor but you know that they just had a moment of like like, like a Grey's Anatomy <gasps> moment where she probably wasn't even in a room with like the glass wall because <laughs> that one <laughs> implies she's having like fucking brain surgery like, done. Suspicious. Right. <laughs> but that they're just looking at each right. other like, we're going to take this bitch down. Mm-hmm. There are things adding two and two ain't coming out the floor right. here, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that had to be such a satisfying like and validating moment for both the of the officers and the ER doctor that, like, they were realizing Are you things. What I'm yes, because mm-hmm. what the like so weird, and I'm sure bizarre <laughs> for them in that tiny town that like they did not see that kind of shit there. We're not talking about like, you know downtown like chicago finally Love chicago but y'all need to check yourself yeah <laughs> yeah so it's just oh man the things are starting to come together right. that things are not what they seemed and that she maybe isn't as good as yeah being the victim and you're a little sketch mm-hmm. Hmm. She's painting herself to be. Miraculously, the moment the police returned to the hospital and told Ezra they had found a brutal fucking crime scene, like a scene out of Fargo back at the dairy farm, wouldn't you know it, Ezra's memory came rushing back to her. And a full-length harrowing story came tumbling out. Now, before we lay Alex Woodworth's last living moments all out for you, just as Ezra told them to police, 
we need to backtrack and give you some details of the folks involved in the story. Ezra McCandless, Alex Woodworth, and Jason Mingle. Remember the person that Ezra was continuously asking to be called on her behalf from the moment Don Simple opened his front door. Ezra McCandless was born in Stanley, Wisconsin on October 6, 1998, but the name on her birth certificate was Monica Kay. Ezra's mother was just 14 years old when she gave birth to Ezra, but Ezra's biological father was not in the picture at all. Gosh. When Ezra was only four years old, her mom's boyfriend actually legally adopted her. <laughs> the big her mom and stepdad eventually divorced like the when Ezra was like 12. Clear frames. According but, to Ezra, uh, yeah, there were lots of conflicts like and fights in their house very, very all throughout her childhood. After her mom and stepdad divorced, Ezra like lived with her mom and Stanley hipster, and, and continued to maintain a relationship with her stepdad. During high school, Ezra became very artsy and philosophical. She loved to doodle and did lots of pen and ink drawings. She journaled heavily and was interested in reading about art and philosophy. If you Google photos of her, she's wearing the huge round yep. glasses, which she apparently actually needed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Blind. Oh. Did you ever see that movie? Oh, sorry if you guys mm -hmm. didn't already know. Okay. She's got the septum piercing. Yes. And the big chunky cardigans. I and her preferred have hangout read the spot book and watched house. the movie. And she is the quintessential I just hipster. Use this as another opportunity Makes to drag sense. her for being an She also started hipster. to try out different names it's and pronouns before settling on she, her, and eventually had her name legally changed from Monica K to Ezra McCandless. Man, a In case y'all were wondering, she chose the last name McCandless after Chris McCandless, whom the book and, and film Into the Wild are both based on. I believe at one point in the story he has. I didn't see it, but I I read part of the book and I know of it. Like I know the whole thing because I probably like read the synopsis <laughs> and lights on fire, and then goes on a journey to air quotes discover himself, and that's fine, that's well and good, but just the to me the Hister. insanity of being able to just light a ridiculous amount of money on fire, and is. Yeah, yeah, it, it just smacks of a degree of out-of-touchness and self-obsession, and he throws away an incredibly prestigious education. Yes, yes, ultimately in his demise. And I want to say that his father or his mother were somehow involved with nasa i mean they were like zero to nasa, nasa. i'm that y'all like i can give you my merch. address i can give you my routing <laughs> number there's other ways <laughs> but ezra mccandless went nasa to zero yeah and then wrote a in my opinion, well, completely also what I know from the story blithering, is self-indulgent, obnoxious stupid decisions book that about ended in it. his. Oh, look at me! I'm just being homeless. And yes, it's so beautiful and romantic, and like, I don't know. It it very much appeals to people like Ezra McCandless. Yes, <laughs> it gives. If you're not wearing that, nobody understands me. 
nobody <laughs> knows what I've been through, even though I have the world mm, laid at my true. feet. And I'm not saying that she did. Exactly. Exactly. It's just tracks with the pocket of hipsters that like to present themselves as very above everyone else and like i'm so artsy i'm so philosophical so it it, it shows like it's like giving here's my hero to her character the world didn't understand because i also am misunderstood and in my opinion people are probably gonna come at me but but like chris mccandless just needed to fucking grow up and like which you're allowed to feel down something beneficial for for certain things but obsessing over himself until he died so they, they, yeah, and I know that sounds really harsh, but I'm also really pissed at Ezra McCandless and what she thought of herself and other people that brought her to the point where we find her. So, yeah. She also apparently used her own car as a canvas and painted different images all over it. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> An insufferable <laughs> hipster. But that makes sense for the truck. Yes. She had a white, it was like a white Chevy Impala, I think. And oh, so that's yeah, the vehicle. Yeah, and there are pictures from the footage of the scene where Ezra's, not Ezra, I'm sorry, Alex's body was found. And she just has doodled weird ass shit that's not even good all over the oh, hood. I bet it's ugly. Yeah, it's, it's not cute at all. It's completely obnoxious. And after she graduated from high school, Ezra did go to college for a brief time, but eventually dropped out and moved back to Stanley, Wisconsin to live with her mom. And, in true hipster fashion, she spent a lot of time hanging out at coffee shops. And one coffee shop in particular in Eau Claire called Racy's Coffee Shop. And if you Google image this place, it is like a hipster's wet dream like the exposed brick and iron pipe on the wall. I'm not saying I wouldn't enjoy having a cup of coffee there, but it's just just another little Very piece on of par. the of, Yes, on par with her vibe. And in the summer of 2017, Ezra met someone at Racy's who also liked to hang out there. A 33-year-old medic with the Army Reserve named Jason Mingle. Now, despite their wide age gap, so remember at the time Ezra is 19, Jason said that Ezra's youthful energy kept him energized and on his toes. He liked that she was spontaneous and that she kept him open to new experiences. And their relationship quickly grew serious enough over just a couple of months that they actually moved in together into Jason's home in Eau Claire. And Caitlin, you have to tell me what you think about this because there are very conflicting schools of thought among the true crime podcasting community, whether or not their relationship had kind of a grooming aspect. And there are people that are like, oh my God, Jason Mingle was a creep and a groomer and Ezra was a child. See, I don't think that. I disagree. I'm not getting that sense. Whereas there no. are some age gaps where, like, I do side eye it. This is one where yeah. it's a girl who nineteen but she's is legal. young, 
but she is so mm-hmm. self-assured and like she's the mm-hmm. i feel like she's the oh, one yes. who initiated yes the relationship she's the one and like, i she's did not read being... that in multiple sources that she actually approached him first and you know it wouldn't matter it, if she was a child approaching him first that's not what we're saying but for right. me, the kicker is this is that they did not meet when she was super young and he was in his late 20s mm-hmm. they met when she was 19 when she was already legal and i know Ugh, it sounds so gross because what the fuck does 18 and a day versus 17 and 364 know, days mean it's like it's such a weird gray area but when you step back and look at the bigger the big picture of their relationship i don't believe that jason mingle was a weird groomer just yeah. from the little tidbit of information right now yeah i think it's, and, I mean, it's it, fine and there is an age gap but it wasn't a predatory age gap and you definitely mm-hmm. get a vibe when that is what that is i don't believe that's what was going on here if it and then i mean him saying she's spontaneous mm-hmm. and keeps him on his toes yeah She's young. That I mean, and I, no, and I don't see anything. I mean, I completely I don't see anything agree wrong with that, that. because 19-year-olds w- exhaust me and I'm almost 33, so. <laughs> I'm 27. <laughs> almost 28 and fucking tired, tired just talking. about 19-year-olds. God. <laughs> <laughs> when did I come this way? Yet. If I become pregnant, it's a teen pregnancy. <laughs> it is that's just a (laughs) fact and between (sighs) these uh, two I don't want to call Jason Mingle a weirdo um, weirdo Ezra because we know what happens but their relationship quickly grew very serious and over just a couple of months they went from hanging out almost daily at Racy's to moving in together into Jason's home in Eau Claire The two would often talk about marriage, and even though they weren't legally married, they would refer to each other with the pet names of husband and wife. Well, that's a little bit gross. And they continued hanging out at the (laughs) coffee shop almost daily. And it was here that they met and became friends with a barista that worked there. 23-year-old Alex Woodworth, who was not only working there as a barista, but also worked in the area as a substitute teacher. Alex had a Bachelor of Science from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where he had majored in philosophy and minored in biology, and at the time that the three became friends, he was actually going through the process of applying to graduate schools so that he could get a PhD in philosophy and become a professor. Alex actually took this goal of philosophy professor very seriously and was constantly reading books on philosophy and doing research in that area. And this fact gets highlighted about him because it's important to note that he actually was very well versed and intelligent in philosophy and was actively pursuing higher education in it. Ezra was somebody that liked to posture Mm -hmm. herself as a philosophy guru. She really was not. 
she just liked to be somebody that was into something that was not black and white so that nobody could tell her she was wrong instead mm-hmm. of being the kind of person that actually thinks and reads deeply and stretches her own mind she just wanted to think whatever she wanted to think and then just be like oh philosophy if somebody disagreed with her yeah and like that's the way it oftentimes is. people like this are often very manipulative and so alex being the kind of person that he was um being incredibly loving and kind and the oldest of four siblings whom he loved deeply and was loved just as much by them in return found himself more susceptible to Ezra's I'm sure love bombing in addition to her well not I shouldn't say love bombing at this point but I'm sure she lavished a lot of attention like so tell me what you think like that kind of just right oh I'm gonna latch on to you because you're an interesting person and a source of supply for me to feel validated and mm-hmm don't want to continue talking about Ezra too much, but it's important to note about Alex. This may be the most heartbreaking thing I've ever read. Uh, Alex's brother, John actually said about Alex that he was particularly known by the people who loved him as being attracted to things that other people saw as unlovely. I'm going to refrain from making a joke about Ezra. But I was <laughs> bird. The but bird. He always loved like bugs and spiders and snakes and things that other people that the world didn't like because he wanted to make sure that things people didn't like were taken care of. And that's That's like Aww. me with products that are dented at the store and I'm like you home. no one's gonna to buy it i need to buy it animals that look wonky. not spiders <laughs> God, i love ugly stuffed animals maybe the one you got me with human yes. teeth yes yeah, so could be our mascot and caitlin a gift she goes out of her way to collect hideous stuffed animals yeah so you we They're just so relate cute. a little bit and i They're lovable. But I think that yes, fact alone that he was says something about Alex. And that he had a kind and empathetic spirit. Mm-hmm. And again, somebody like Ezra is going to latch onto that, who is starving for validation. And while she has not been professionally diagnosed, I'm just going to speculate, narcissist. And he was a source of supply for her. Jason Mingle would later describe Alex as one of the nicest people he'd ever met and a big nerd. Not in a mean way, but in a loving way, because he was always reading philosophy stuff. No. At this point in Jason and Ezra's relationship, things had gotten a little tumultuous. According to Jason Mingle, Ezra had some emotional problems, and since the three of them had become very close together, Jason thought that Alex would be a good person for her to work through them with. 
and on the flip side, Alex reportedly struggled with bouts of depression, and Jason thought he and Ezra could both help one another in those areas. Now, at this point in Ezra and Jason's relationship, when they have already gotten to be very close friends with Alex, the drama escalates. And an awesome podcast called Killer Queens breaks it down very well as follows. After Jason and Ezra had become close friends with Alex, Ezra learned that she was pregnant with Jason's child. It was in the fall of 2017, on October 6, 2017, Ezra and Jason drove to Minneapolis to have the pregnancy terminated. When they arrived at the clinic, Ezra told Jason that she wanted him to leave because she didn't want him to see her go through with it or see her in that condition. Jason would later testify that he spent the day in Minneapolis just bumming around, riding the buses and exploring the city until he received a text from Ezra saying that she I was saw ready it to leave. I written in a couple of sources that Ezra wanted to keep the baby, but that Jason was very much like, no, this is not what we had talked about, and that there was maybe some pressure there. I don't know to what extent that is true, but it would make sense mm-hmm. if, from what we know about her and her tendency to manipulate, that she could have very well become mm-hmm. pregnant on purpose, and that I don't know. It just could have been something else that poured fuel on the fire of their. But no, either way, either we don't way, know if it was a consensual. Right. Either way, there was decision not, on either side, mind, and that caused a major mm. rift in their relationship. And that, whether or not you are of one mind or not, I, I still believe that that would be a very difficult thing to go through together, especially if it was unplanned, mm-hmm. especially because Ezra is so young and they haven't been together a long time. Right. You're talking about a huge life change when maybe that's not something they had planned for yet. So either way, mm-hmm. after Ezra's abortion, she and Jason continued to remain together, but were drifting apart. Meanwhile, Ezra and Alex became closer, and this was largely because Jason actively encouraged it and was pushing them together because he did not Mm -hmm. want to deal. He just didn't want to deal, which is fine if you're... That's a whole nother conversation for another time. If we want to talk about, like, (laughs) getting into actual, like a polyamorous type relationship and like having certain needs met elsewhere when like you know you can't provide something but that's not what was happening here jason Mm -hmm. and ezra were by all accounts like in an exclusive monogamous relationship but jason because he didn't want to deal with the emotions was pushing ezra and Mm -hmm. alex together and ezra was kind of like, okay, she basically ran into Alex's open arms because he was there holding them open and he was eager to help both Jason and Ezra. And Jason has even stated publicly, like in the aftermath, that he felt like Alex would be a great support person for Ezra. And as often happens in this type of situation where one or both people are incredibly vulnerable eventually both of them 
Alex and Ezra began sleeping together. And that brings us to February of 2018. According to Killer Queen's podcast, in February of 2018, Jason had to leave Eau Claire for two weeks for military training, and before he left, he approached one of his friends, John Hansen, and asked him if he could keep an eye on Ezra. Not in a weird or creepy way, but just to check in on her a couple of times and make sure she was doing okay. Jason had known John for a few years, and they had shared interest. They both like to play Dungeons and Dragons so and had both spent time in the military. Like looking on Ezra, she's being a little weird. Yeah, a pal. While he was away, though, Jason received a call from Ezra, and she told him that she was moving out of their apartment and back with her family in Stanley, Wisconsin. And when Jason returned home, he and Ezra continued to keep in contact and would occasionally meet up. But back in Stanley... Ezra's family life wasn't the best, like she mentioned throughout childhood, and on a few occasions, Jason Mingle would still get a hotel for her to stay at so that she could get away from the drama of it all. And whenever he did this, he would also go and stay with her at the hotel. I'm getting very much a vibe of he doesn't want to deal with the drama but he likes feeling like he's in a protective caregiver mm-hmm. role yeah that he likes relationship rescuing her maybe i don't i don't know yeah i get what you mean but definitely he's not mm-hmm. into the yeah. emotional baggage at all at one of these visits jason saw messages on ezra's phone between her and john for a while, John, John has suspected that, that Ezra was cheating on dragons him. With. Right. Wait. No, you said Did John, I say John and that's or Jason? correct. Because remember, we got introduced to a new person, oh. John Hansen. And John Hansen was the one that when he was gone, he was like, hey, can you check up on her? So he uh, then saw messages between her and John on her phone. Mm-mm-mm. He had a feeling that she and Alex had had an affair, and after seeing the messages, he felt she did with John as well. Ezra told Jason that John assaulted her and tried to blame him, but the messages gave a different vibe. Oh my god, these are so bad. (laughs) Ezra, are you going to pound this on- Trust me, (laughs) shut up. (laughs) Stop it. This is like the Tom Brady- Is it? No, it's like Maroon 5 cheating messages. Are you going to pound this anytime soon? Ezra, sorry I'm rude. John, not this week. I have Warren. <laughs> You're not getting pounded this week. <laughs> Who's War- Also, can Warren please be like his cat? <laughs> not like his child. <laughs> uh, John, his, his kitty cat. <laughs> John, it's all right to be blunt. Just got to be all right with it coming back your way. Eh? I'm fair enough, John. Are you also going to Ezra. pound this anytime soon? I bet there had to be a picture attached with it. Ew, 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 ew. <laughs> Which people talk about dick pics, but a vagina pic, no. There, listen, there is nothing in my vicariousness have I ever been like, yes. People's genitals are not attractive to look at. I don't care who you are. I'm just <laughs> I'm saying. Sorry. 
you're either tits or you're a butt like person there's there's never the discussion are you a penis person or a ball sack person yeah. like are you a clitoris person or <laughs> like or a labia majora <laughs> like that's never the debate ew, that's ew, never ew. the debate also are you going to pound this i i have never I don't think that phrase has remotely ever come out of my mouth or in a text message. No. <laughs> that's, that's just her trying to be dirty and it just comes it, off as cringe. That was so like... And then being like, sorry, I'm rude. Ew. Just just say what you mean I'm to say. Sorry, just say but what it's you mean a to no say. for me. <laughs> sorry, I have Warren. <laughs> <laughs> I really do hope it's a cat or a dog. I'm gonna start using that excuse <laughs> with Josh I and just Warren. be like, "Sorry, I have Warren." <laughs> He's gonna be like, "What the? Uh... Who's Warren?" <laughs> oh gosh. Uh... But either way, Jason was a little sus, and now he's found out that definitely she was cheating on him. With yes. His Dungeons and Dragons. Oh buddy. man, you just broke up a campaign. Ah. <gasps> Ezra, you bitch. Gosh. When Jason confronted both Alex and John at Racy's about their relationships with Ezra and the alleged assault, it's said to have been a very loud and public argument between the three men. For this one girl. For this one girl who... And it's always somebody who is not... And I... Not all that. Not worth it. Yeah. I agree. I agree. She must have really just been that good at emotionally manipulating and playing them. I mean, really, though. scary. And also, like, when you look at Jason and Alex, I've not seen a picture of John. But Jason and Mm -hmm. Alex are objectively nice-looking men. Mm -hmm. Like, they're... They're both very clean cut. They look like they take care of themselves. They have nice faces. They have kind faces, like... They're they're attractive and they could have done way better than Ezra. I hope there's a way for her to listen to this in prison because if y'all ain't picking up what we're putting down, that's something horrible murder is happening at her hand. Again, then, she's a POS. Yeah. But, oh my God. It's just fascinating to me, this level of drama between three fucking men. And John didn't even really know her. Like... Oh, can you just check I mean, up? I don't he know. He was asked to watch her. I get you. Yeah. There were no stipulations, I'm assuming. I guess not. At least said Again, ones. If it was a consensual polycule, that would have been fine, but this is not what was happening. But also weird because Jason and her weren't they broken up? Isn't that what we're getting? Technically, but I guess when it happened. Oh, that they weren't like broken they weren't. up when it was happening. I see. But yeah. even like her saying I'm moving out. Yeah. That didn't say break up. Right. Because it says they continued to talk and that he would go stay with her. So maybe it and was And maybe like, in his mind, his, he's like, well, we may not be together, but we are only seeing yeah. each other. I could also see where the trauma of going through the abortion and things like that made her be like, I need to not be in this space yeah. anymore. I completely understand that. Yeah. So during this very loud and public argument at 
the hipster coffee shop <laughs> between the three men, Jason told Alex, quote, you're my friend, you know, I love you. How could you do this? Alex apologetically admitted to everything. With this, Jason and Ezra's relationship ended. Okay, so that was the catalyst that officially ended it. But then Ezra blamed Alex for her and Jason's relationship ending. Some sources claim that Jason ended their relationship and some say that Ezra ended it with both Alex and Jason. (sighs) I have a lot of things to say. Yeah. There's a lot of toxicity going on from all sides like Ezra, Alex, Jason, John. Yeah. Her to put blame on anyone but herself. Yeah. Yeah. In late February, Ezra sent a text to Alex telling him to never talk to her again. (laughs) Okay. And Alex respected her wishes and never contacted her after that. Man. Mm. Ezra and Jason would still talk and text. Goodness. And Jason said that Ezra tried desperately to win him back. Mm. Jason said that she was manipulative and took advantage of all three men in the situation. Jason, Mm. honey, you're still talking to her, though. You are still talking to her. She sent Jason journals talking about how she was sorry for betraying him and that she loved him, etc. She would try to deliver them by hand, but he told her that if she wanted to send them, she should send them by any other means than in person. Mm. Uh, Oh, that's fair enough. I also read that these were like long ass journal entries that she wrote because this was something she would do and that she wanted to share them with Jason because she, quote, needed to get her voice back. I'm like, shut. Please shut up. Please shut up. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Ezra then brought allegations against John, the Dungeons and Dragons buddy, (laughs) claiming that he had sexually assaulted her. She went to the police and actually spoke with a detective. The detective talked with Ezra for a bit and got her side of the story. She claimed that she and John had been drinking and, quote, got a little tipsy. And that's when she blacked out and believes that she was assaulted. But the detective looked through Ezra's phone records and found text messages which indicated that she was most likely lying. I also do want to say here that, like, that's not to dismiss people that absolutely have been sexually Mm -hmm. assaulted against their will. While because being blackout drunk is never consent for anything being done to you, but I think this detective was taking into account everything she said, her relationship history, Mm -hmm. and the broader context of what was going on, and probably very specific things that were said between the two of them, especially because it sounds like she was very much a compulsive texter. Like, there are several articles that would say at one, there was a one day where she sent like 600 text messages back and forth between her and Jason Mingle. So, like, she was one of those people that was just glued to her phone texting back and forth so he probably had a lot to go off of confirming that a lot documented yes that they had a consensual relationship and alex said that oh my god 
The detective also spoke with Alex, who did not corroborate Ezra's story, which is also very telling. Alex said that Ezra had confided in him that she did have consensual sex with John that night, but later regretted it. Hence, the story about the sexual assault, which is fucked up. Like, don't ruin somebody's life because you made a shitty decision. Again, seriously, a decision you made. Exactly. You... Exactly. Babe, you are digging your grave. Mm-hmm. You're the only one with the shovel. And you were not sorry that you did it. You were sorry that you got caught and you tried to play yourself out to be the victim. Classic narcissist <sighs> behavior. So fortunately, with this revelation from Alex, the sexual assault charges that were being brought against John, Jesus Christ, were finally dropped. Poor John. Gosh. (laughs) John, you shouldn't have stuck things where they shouldn't have been stuck. But I'm just saying. I mean. Yikes. That could have been way worse. Now we're in March 22nd, 2018. It was like any other day in Eau Claire. Jason had been going throughout his morning and stopped at Racy's for some coffee. While he was there, though, he looked up and there she was. Oh, gosh, it had to be like a jump scare. (laughs) Ezra had returned to Eau Claire and was going to be moving back. She was telling people that she was turning over a new leaf, essentially, and was getting back to her old self. She told Jason that she was taking back her life and becoming Ezra again. Who was she before? I mean, okay. I mean, we do find ourselves in our 20s, but bitch, we're only 19. That's true. In truth, she had been talking about driving back to Eau Claire, and her dad told her it wasn't a good idea. He Mm. tried to talk her out of it, going as far as to hide her keys. Wow. She found them, and now she was there. In front of Jason. Oh, God. There is security footage and people there said she seemed to be acting out of character. One server told the police later that she wasn't her usual self. Her clothes were disheveled and she was visibly agitated. They also noted that she wasn't wearing any makeup, which was not normal for Ezra. Mm, that's interesting. So she was not put together. Yeah. And if you look at pictures of her on the Google, she always has a very done face, like mm-hmm. intense brows. And she has the, um, it's like, it's like heavy makeup, but it's like monochromatic. Like she has intense brows and then it's like, like natural, else. like her face is whitewashed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and then she's got the, like, what is this? The septum piercing. Yeah. Which is a look that I personally cannot stand, but to each their own, I'm going to find any reason I can to shit talk her. The night before, Ezra and Jason had been texting back and forth, sending over 600 fucking messages to one another. She told Jason that she was going to see Alex to return some of his stuff to him and to share some of her writings with him. After they talked for a bit, Ezra left. But Jason said when she left, she, quote, had fire in her eyes. Ah! He had a bad feeling about the whole situation. Jason decided that he couldn't ignore the feeling and jumped on his bicycle and actually rode to Alex's apartment. 
Once there, he spotted Ezra's 2003 Chevy Impala with the car still running, music still playing, and the driver's side door wide open, parked in front of Alex's house. He didn't know what to do. And he said that for almost 45 minutes, he paced back and forth before finally walking into the front door without knocking. Hmm. Yikes. Jason described the environment as tense. He said that they were inside talking, but it was an intense conversation. Quote, you could taste the tension in the air. He said when he looked at Ezra and Alex, it was obviously them, but their faces looked different. He said they looked like they were wearing masks of themselves, just emotionless. Oh, that's creepy. Oh. It was easy for him to see that something was going on, but they pretended that everything was okay. That's when Jason suggested that they leave Alex's house and go talk in a public, spl- public place, hoping that in a public, neither of them would do anything crazy to each other. As they walked up, a police cruiser pulled up. Oh, I get, as they walked mm-hmm. out of Alex's house. Okay. Apparently, a concerned passerby had seen Jason pacing back and forth earlier outside and decided to call the police to have him checked out. So he must have looked really fucking agitated for someone to actually mm-hmm. call the police. Dash cam footage from the police car shows officers talking to Alex by Ezra's car. She's sitting in the driver's seat, but can't be seen. Then another officer is off camera speaking with Jason. And Jason tells him, quote, She gave me a vibe today, man. I don't know. It doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong. Always listen to your gut. Mm. That. But at the end of it, like, what could he have truly done? Right. I feel like he did everything he could do. He went there. He tried to make sure they were okay. He was cooperative with police because it makes you think that like maybe he would have gotten to the point of calling police Mm -hmm. himself. But that's just uh, yikes. The officers continued to speak with everyone and Ezra and Alex assured them that everything was okay. The officer said, quote, I'd rather come here and check it and it be nothing than have something bad happen. After a bit, the officers were satisfied that everything and everyone was okay, and so they left. Jason rode his bike to Ezra's car and talked to Alex briefly before Ezra drove away with Alex in the passenger seat. Oh, oh my gosh. So I was able to look at this uh, Mm -hmm. police dash cam footage online because it actually gets played in court at one point during an examination of Ezra. And there's an incredibly telling section of that dash cam footage where Ezra is sitting in the car and you can like barely Mm -hmm. see the outline of her head. But Jason Mingle is standing on one side of the car and Alex is standing on the other side of the car and they are intensely speaking to each other over like the top of the car. And Ezra's just like sitting between them like. And it's such a perfect visual of a fucked up like love triangle that she's literally caught in between these two men but that she herself has generated Mm this bizarre energy and conflict that is taking place but they all still have a part of guilt in it because you know jason 
could be argued emotionally abused her, pushed right. her and Alex together. Alex crossed boundaries, Ezra crossed boundaries, then they this broke the up. a definition really just, of a shit show. Uh, it is absolutely a shit show. And then there's the popo being like, well, nobody's actually is doing true. anything illegal. So like, like what we're not can here we to really do? Break up bitch fights, like. Right. Oh man. So they did the right thing because there wasn't really anything to do. But hindsight 2020, you can look at everything through the lens of making your skin absolutely crawl, and it does. And just over three hours later, Ezra would be on Don Sipple's porch. When Ezra spoke with police, remember, like we said, she couldn't remember anything. She said all that she could remember was being afraid of this person named Alex. She couldn't even remember her own name, but she kept giving them Jason Mangle's name and asking them to call him. She had those three cuts on her hand, which turned out to not be very deep, and the word boy cut into one of her forearms, which turned out to be most likely self-inflicted. She had the scrapes near her underwear and scratches on her thigh and jaw, which were both superficial enough to be gone a couple of days later. And when questioned about those injuries, initially, particularly the boy cut into her arm, she told them, Alex did it. And hospital staff were confused and concerned because to them, it seemed like things weren't adding up and these injuries were most likely self-inflicted. Suddenly, her memory had returned and she claimed Alex had dragged her into the back seat and carved boy into her arm as a cruel taunt because she didn't identify as that anymore. Did she identify as a boy at one point? Yes, there was one point when she oh, okay. was in high school and was unsure of how she was identifying with her pronouns. Oh, I guess that's then she said not she, her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's not a lot of information about that. And because she eventually settled on she, her pronouns and legally changed her name to Ezra, that's what all the things I read and watched refer to her as, so that's what we were so referring to. So that's what as, she's claiming it stands yeah. for. Claiming that it was a way for him to torment her about a difficult mm. time in her adolescence. But yes. she'd actually carved it into her own arm after stabbing Alex to death. Why? She says she cannot remember. But here's what she does remember. And this is what she says. Yes, this is the version of events that Ezra McCandless gave to police, both in her second questioning immediately after they came back to the hospital and also the account that she gave later in court. And this is the version of events that she maintains to this day and has not budged on. So bear that in mind as we go through this and then what we will talk about actually happened. The two of them were driving aimlessly out in the countryside and were close to the dairy farm when the car got stuck in the mud, but it wouldn't budge. So instead of calling a tow truck, Alex suggested she lay down in the back seat to quote, breathe through the anxiety she was feeling. In Ezra's own words on the stand, here is what happened once she laid down in the back seat. 
When I laid down, Alex had started to come into the car with me and position himself above me. You could say straddled. Specifically, what I remember him saying is, Ezra is beautiful. Ezra, my shining son. I had betrayed him. I went back to Jason. He was upset about this and that he deserved me. He started to do things slowly and methodically. He first removed my glasses. And then uh, the lawyer asks, when your glasses are off, can you see? And Ezra is like, "Eh, no, I really can't. Barely passed a couple inches in front of my face. So, Mm -hmm. yes. Then she says, he then takes my scarf and he places it over my eyes. And he asks me if I can see him. I say, no, I cannot. I can't see him, but I can feel him start to touch my clothes. I feel his touch on the hem of my sweater. I could feel a pull on it, and I wasn't really sure what at the time he was doing, but I could feel it start to give way and get looser, as though her sweater had been opened. And we do want to mention here, you can easily find this footage on Court TV. Ezra's affect here is next to zero. It's like she is... Mm-hmm. reciting a, almost sounds like she's reciting a journal entry of herself in the starring role of the movie about her life she's speaking though very clearly and very confidently like there is no other truth but the one that she is presenting and she's not getting emotional she is not speaking with conviction she's just state stating things very matter-of-factly and monotone almost like she's bored and it's very bizarre to watch Mm -hmm. as it's unfolding but it's also very detailed like you know you hear about how people when they give Mm -hmm. too much detail they're more likely to be lying and I also get those vibes from everything like we've read up to this point and we'll continue to reading so As she continues on, Ezra says, He took off my scarf, and I saw that he had been cutting my sweater. My second shirt was then getting cut, and I felt a slight prick or something, and then he started cutting through my pants. He started near the button below the one on the front, and at this point, I could feel the knife start to graze and cut into my skin. I could feel it on my vagina and inside my, quote, hip region. She said she could feel a pinch and could tell that the knife had been making contact. She was frozen and said the thought was going through her mind that he's going to do what he wants and take anything that he wants. He's going to just use me and she didn't know what to do. She was terrified and couldn't move. Her mind was running through all the possibilities of what he was going to do and wondering if he was going to kill her and then kill himself so that he didn't have to be all alone. She felt the knife run down her pants and punctured her leg with the knife. At this point, Ezra reaches out, again, according to her, and grabs at or bats at the knife that she feels is puncturing her leg. And when she feels the bite of the blade pinching or pricking at her hand, she quickly pulls her hand away. She says that, at this point, 
her leg was between Alex's knees as he knelt over her in the back seat of the car and that she was on her back gripping the seat of the back seat with one hand when she decided to bring up her knee and knee him in the groin. At this point, Alex violently reacts, drops the knife, kind of lurches away from her, and she grabs the knife instantly and in one motion uses her free arm to push herself down into the footwell. Then she says, quote, that's when everything really starts to happen. At this point, I have the knife. I'm trying to get out of the car. And I'm saying, I need to get out of the car. Alex apparently is still grabbing at Ezra. And at this point is when Ezra begins to defend herself and begins to stab at Alex. She's stabbing at him anywhere and everywhere she can. She doesn't know what is happening. She just says she knows she needs to get away and get out of the car. And while she almost made it out of the car, Alex grabbed her by the throat and pressed her head against the back of the driver's seat. His hand slid from the back of her throat to grabbing her hair. He was holding it very tight and he was pulling her face towards him. So she stabbed him in the head and he got out of the car. She says... No, she stabbed, so she says, I stabbed him in the head. He got out of the car. And then he got out of the car. And, I mean, okay, I guess we don't know what we're going to do after being stabbed in the head, but that's, getting stabbed in the head is pretty in game. Well, she gets him 15, 16 times. She says, I wasn't trying to kill him. I just wanted to get away as fast as I could. She continued stabbing him because he wouldn't let go and wouldn't let her out. And she was terrified. Alex was standing up near what was the green trailer and had said he needed help to go to the bathroom. So she got out of the car and approached him because she just wanted to help. Babe, if you're going to make up a story, fucking make it make sense. <laughs> I mean, the real, details that's what I'm are saying, way like, too much. Yeah, and so this green trailer was just one that was also like out in the middle of the farm on Don Sipple's property, and I guess the car just kind of ended up by it. But so you literally just stabbed him in the fucking head after he actually tried to kill you, and then he's like, "I have to go to the bathroom. Please help Anything. me." And so she's like, "Oh, I just wanted to help." What? That, it makes no goddamn sense. So, bear with us, because as we're still going, when she approached Alex, he apparently grabbed her again and pulled her in very close and tight to his body. And she still had the knife in her hand, thought, oh my god, he's going to kill me, this is it. And she quickly reached around and stabbed Alex in the side, hoping he would let go. After this, she went back into the car, the car that she previously had just been like, I gotta get out, I gotta get out, I gotta get out, and sat there shivering. While she's in the car, Alex took his coat off, according to Ezra, and laid it on the ground near the trailer and laid down on the coat. From the car, 
Ezra could hear Alex saying that he had been waiting for this for so long. She also heard him saying strange things about roommates, and he just kept saying he's been waiting for this for so long. She was still sitting in the car and was breathing to herself and saying out loud, what is happening? And that's when Ezra decided, uh, finally, apparently, she needed to go and get out. She saw Alex's phone in the car and took it. In her head, she wanted to call the police. She wanted to get help. And as she left the car, Alex was still lying on his coat near the green trailer. That's when she finally completely left Alex and began making her way towards Don Sipple's farmhouse for help. On her way there, she dropped the knife and the phone. Now, after comparing this account from Ezra to the ER doctor's observation and the evidence at the crime scene, remember Alex's body being found stabbed 16 times lying hanging out of the car, not on his fucking jacket next to a trailer, it didn't take long for investigators to come to the conclusion that the whole thing was <laughs> bullshit. The way that Alex's body was found, not lying on the ground next to the trailer on his coat, but hanging out of the car in a pool of blood, the complete lack of defensive wounds on Alex's hands and arms that surely would have been present if the two of them had struggled violently like Ezra claimed, coupled with the vicious stab wound to the back of his head and the bizarre superficial and most likely self-inflicted injuries on Ezra's arm and hand, resulted, I thank God, in Ezra McCandless being arrested and charged on April 6, 2018, approximately two weeks after she had showed up at Don Sipple's door. At Ezra's trial, her defense team used a wide brush to paint a picture of Ezra being the victim. They said that Alex was the obsessed ex and had carefully orchestrated isolating Ezra in the car way out in the country so that he could then force himself on her sexually. They said that Ezra, the true victim in this scenario, had only acted in self-defense out of desperation to escape. And it is interesting to note here that when Ezra took the stand at trial, her story of how she acquired the knife from Alex changed pretty drastically. Initially in police interviews, she had told police that she grabbed the knife out of Alex's hands with her own. But on the stand, she claimed that instead of grabbing the knife, she had kneed Alex. Remember that, uh, I think we went over that part, but it says she kneed him in the groin, resulting in him dropping the knife. That's a pretty significant moment. Ooh, you lying. <laughs> I mean, lying. Why are you lying? Why are you always lying? And then, <laughs> we know why. Because you're an evil bitch. Then she grabbed the knife and started stabbing. The prosecution took a bit of a different approach. Instead of focusing on whether or not Ezra did it, which obviously she did, they zoned in on why would she do this. 
Why would this gentle, free-spirited... Oh my gosh, I want to gag. I'm sorry. Oh my god. Yeah. Free-spirited artist type be pushed to violently stab her former lover to death because of the one person she asked for over and over in the moments following the murder, Jason Mingle. The prosecution theorized that since Jason had always been protected of Ezra and quick to swoop in and take care of her, even after they had separated, she saw an opportunity in the drama between Jason and Alex to A, let Jason be her ultimate rescuer, and B, prove that Alex was the dangerous one all along. Once Alex was literally gone and his only legacy was being seen by the world as a dangerous predator, Ezra would be revealed as the sad, trembling victim, and Jason would swoop in and rescue Ezra once and for all. To further prove their theory correct, it was an incredibly powerful moment for the prosecution when Jason Mingle walked into the courtroom to take the stand and Ezra McCandless lit up like a Christmas tree. Ugh. Up until this point, it is not an exaggeration to say that she displayed zero emotional effect in the courtroom, even when she was giving her version of the stabbing on the stand. Did you watch, I know you watched some of the court TV uh -huh. just to get a picture of what is going on. And not only is she not giving any sort of like reaction, most of the time she's not even looking at the person on the stand and she is hunched over fucking drawing, like doodling. Why is she even allowed to do that? Like you should have to sit there. I know innocent until proven guilty, but you've still been arrested and charged. So to me, you should have to sit there and like at least show some, yeah, pay attention, show respect. Like she's acting like a child. And then she had the fucking audacity later to try and sell her courtroom artwork. And that is disgusting. That is disgusting. Anywho, I'm gonna refrain. But that just shows you that weird, creepy obsession she had with Jason Mangle. Like to show and the only emotion she showed throughout the whole time was when he walked in, not when like her uh, statements were being read. Like she was the victim. She's not even showing that she's like. Mm -hmm. She's not even yeah. showing she's the victim. She's just showing nothing. Right. Right. And not even later on, as we'll go to see when Alex's family is given the opportunity to give victim statements. And I, with the first time I sat and watched them, I was sobbing at some of the things that were said. And she is literally just sitting there deadpan. Nothing. She kind of looks like she has a look of like concern. And I just want to swat it off her face. It's so fake. Yeah, because it, it's so fake looking. Just like, it's almost a patronizing look. Mm. Like, oh, um, I'm sorry. Like if you were watching an infomercial at your grandma's house at 10 at night. Ugh. Like that kind of... Man, God, I hate, 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 hate. I feel a lot of hatred Gosh. in my heart for this person. <laughs> and I'm embracing it. If you're curious, we really encourage you to go on YouTube and watch this moment that we were just explaining on Court TV mm -hmm. and get a feel for what mm -hmm. y'all think. Yeah. yeah. When Jason yes. Mingle walks in, Ezra abruptly goes from being hunched over her notebook to sitting straight up. She starts polishing her glasses. She holds her shoulders back and adjusts the sleeves of her outfit. 
which is a peach pink blazer layered with an olive green knitted sweater given to her by Jason. Why was she also allowed to pick out what well, she wore or like, I don't ugh. They're don't allowed to, to because she wants. It makes the impression on the jury. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. And yeah. they curate how you look to, and they were trying to make her look as soft and feminine and victimy as possible. And you know that she did not tell them <laughs> that that sweater had been given to her by Jason. Or else, even her defense probably would have been Maybe like, not. Maybe not. Let's go with the plaid <laughs> set. Maybe let's tone it down a little. <sighs> also, I have never seen peach pink look good on anybody on God's you know, green earth. I, I, I had honestly a can't I think tried. of. <laughs> let's not go back. Oh, she practically looks giddy. And stares intently at him this entire time he is in the courtroom. And we should also note here that Jason's eyes look like fucking UFO saucers. He's like, ah! I do. He's like, that could have been me. He is visibly, incredibly uncomfortable. To the point where he actually raised the wrong hand at first when he had to swear in. Poor guy. Oh, no. He would later tell Court TV that seeing Ezra wearing the green sweater made him extremely uncomfortable with good reason oh my gosh i do want to mention really quick because i don't see this talked about much in just kind of quick breakdowns of this case because it's such a doozy and there's so many hours of court tv a lot of youtube crime storytellers kind of like roll through it fast but there is a significant thing that happens between when Ezra um, kind of like gets Alex to go out with her and in the 24 hours before all of this is happening. So apparently, you know, Jason and Ezra, they had split up. They were no longer living together. But in those couple of months as we talked about she's writing him those letters trying to give him journals and some of the ways that the story's told just makes it seem like she is relentlessly texting him dming him which is true she was but she was also actively stalking him she would show up places where she knew that he would be and try to give him like physical copies of her journals yeah and he yeah, and he was like, oh, no. But apparently her doing that instead of him uh, running, it kind of, because she's so fucking manipulative, it actually kind of like drew him back into her web. And yeah, and they had started talking again. And the day before the murder the day before she showed up at Racy's without makeup looking disheveled and all of that jason and alex actually got into a blow-up fight where jason really was like no like i'm i'm actually out wow you're crazy this is the end and she was like but we're an ancient love destined to be together and so he was like no basically like leave me alone we are done 
And it was the next day that she showed up at Racy's looking all disheveled and wacky and being very like um, on edge. And everybody that just kind of generally knew her was like, yeah, something was off. And that's when she was like, I'm, I'm going to go confront Alex, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, oh, fuck. And that's when he followed her. And so it's that little, that part about how they had had that, air quotes, final convo the night before that I think... Oh, yeah, really, that was like, her, like, the door her. closing and her being, like... Yeah, like, she saw the reality that, like, no, he's really starting to see through your bullshit, and he is done, and that is uh, very important to note in that, like, pattern, that escalation Ooh, station gone. that got she her left to the point. She left a schedule. Yeah, I, gone. Yeah. The <laughs> chug-a-lug, gone. Oh, gosh. <laughs> In the end, it only took the jury three hours of deliberation to unanimously agree with the prosecution on what actually happened between Ezra and Alex on the fringes of Don Sipple's dairy farm. The day that the two of them took the drive out into the country, and if you guys remember, this was immediately after police were called outside of Alex's home because Jason had followed Ezra there, and that neighbor was like, oh, this guy has been pacing around the yard for 45 minutes but nothing illegal had gone on and there's some tense chatting but then Ezra and Alex got in the car together and drove away and that was the last time anyone saw Alex alive the mega folding pocket knife used in the stabbing had been acquired by Ezra from her dad in Eau Claire and was resting in the console of her car when she went to Alex's house and convinced him to take a drive with her. The prosecution theorized that even though she may not have planned the aftermath of the attack out very well, Ezra had planned to kill Alex from the start. As the two of them were driving down the dirt road, the car got completely stuck in the mud in the spot where police eventually spotted it with their binoculars. They had both gotten out of the car to see how bad the mud and the tires were. And this next part is our own camping is canceled speculation. Because if you guys remember when Ezra hit the stand, she claimed that when the car got stuck and they both got out to check it, that Ezra had been practically hyperventilating with anxiety about the car being stuck. And Alex had suggested she go lie down in the back seat and focus on her breathing to calm down. We believe that part might actually be true because it seems to track with the kind of person that Alex was. And Ezra was probably incredibly on edge, but it wasn't because the car was stuck in the mud. So either the knife was already in Ezra's hand when the two of them got out of the car, or she went back to the car under the pretense of lying down and grabbed it out of the console. But either way, she had realized that Alex's back being turned to her and his attention being focused on the tires gave her her moment of opportunity. And she plunged the knife into the back of his motherfucking head 
then continued to stab him 15 more times. The prosecution theorized that with Alex's body being halfway out of the back seat, that either he tried to climb in to save himself from Ezra, or that at some point he managed to actually get into the back seat, maybe to try and barricade himself in the car, and the two of them had struggled. Or it was possible that after the attack, Ezra tried to drag his body out, but wasn't able to. Unbelievably, according to Alex's autopsy, none of the stab wounds that Alex had suffered were immediately fatal, which means that if he had received immediate medical attention, he would have likely survived, which also means that Ezra would have had to sit there and literally watch Alex die, then spent the next few hours manipulating the crime scene to look like she was the victim. That is a level of sadistic that it's, I cannot again, comprehend. Like you, 16 times stabbing somebody. Even if you stab somebody hate in the moment the first time, even the second time, mm-hmm. you still had time to think third, mm-hmm. fourth, fifth, t- like so on and so forth. Yeah. And then you sat yeah. there and watched him die. You watched him bleed <sighs> out. Like he probably, like, pleaded. He probably, to- like, and, yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I have no doubt that she sat there just like she did in the courtroom with like no feeling, no empathy because she well, is stab somebody is so yeah. sadistic to begin with. I mean, Ugh. and that is not an easy thing to do. Like, you have to use a lot of force to actually stab somebody and pull a knife back out and if you look at that knife it was i'm sure that the one side of it it was sharp but it was not like one of those that is meant for that i'm sorry to be gross but you know when you look at it you'll see what i mean it's like a folding large pocket knife that you use if you need to like cut your seat belt off it's not a like something you use for like weapon skinning a deer yeah yeah so that took some strength and some force disgusting on november 1st 2019 ezra mccandless was convicted of first degree intentional homicide in the stabbing of alex woodworth after her sentencing hearing alex's family was given the opportunity to give victim impact statements um if y'all want to be wrecked for days you can easily find those on court tv they are very difficult to watch and i think very necessary to watch because you understand not only the pain and the irrevocable damage that one person's incredibly selfish action just wreaked on generations of alex's family but you also get to see the utter lack of care and remorse she plasters that, on her face yeah yeah during oh, her God. statement alex's aunt crystal woodworth said of ezra that quote throughout the trial we never saw any signs of sadness shame compassion or slight bit of remorse for what you had done and even after this ezra had the fucking audacity to give the following statement to Alex's family. After they had all, had all said their piece. She Quote, still said this. Hi, 
I would like to address your honor in the courts and Alex's family, most of all Alex's parents. I want to say how sorry I am that they have lost their son, but sorry doesn't cut it in my mind. The word is not enough and never will be enough for the loss and I recognize this. I don't think I could ever find words that will be enough to express this, especially to them. The pain they feel is unimaginable. I want to express how sorry I am for this loss because it is such a great loss. I recognize and completely acknowledge this pain and I'm so sorry. I loved Alex very much and I also feel a great loss and I'm so sorry. And thank you for letting me say this. Thank you. Do you hear at any point in that, Caitlin, did you say she did She made it wrong? all about herself. Mm-hmm. She had the audacity to say she had suffered a loss. What a slap in the face. And that sounds like what you say to somebody whose cat ran out in front of your car. I mean, I mean, <laughs> oh gosh. Like, honestly, I think I would be more torn up. I would blame myself. I wouldn't sleep for days. I would feel horrendous. But she just like, I'm sorry like, for your loss. There's nothing you like, can there say. She kind of loosely like, knew. Yeah. It was so st- stupid of her for. I don't know. I don't know. I have so many opinions. I hate. I know there are reasons why they have mm-hmm. to let people speak like this in the courtroom, but I wish that because of the circumstances of this, that she had not even been allowed to open her mouth because that was just adding insult to injury. It really was. And the judge's face when she's giving this, he's just like, oh my God, like this is what I went Gosh. to school for. <laughs> her fucking defense team I can't even to defend somebody like this I would have to like bathe in liquor like I would be yeah the definition of an alcoholic like I would be the picture the staple of definitely not I'm just saying that's where I would be that would be the realities that would yeah yeah there is nothing remotely good or remorseful in that and when the judge spoke during Ezra's sentencing following these statements he mentioned what many were thinking that Ezra's statement seemed insincere as a fuck he made it a point to tell her that and he then sentenced her to life in prison with the ability to petition for release after serving 50 years. And his reasoning for this was that even if in 50 years she applied for release, Alex's parents would most likely be deceased, and they wouldn't have to live through the heartache of seeing her possibly released into the world. So oh, that's I think so that's fair. Dark. I know. It's, it's very dark. But there's a lot of explanation that you can find for legalese reasons that goes why into why in that particular state he has to um, with the charges and all of that why she had to be given like a certain number of years. I wish it had been the 60 years that the uncle wished for for a year to every day that they made them wait to have Alex's body for Mm. burial. Go watch the court TV of Alex's family victim impact statements because 
his uncle Mm -hmm. it's his uncle right i believe his biological aunt's husband who was a law enforcement officer for 23 plus plus years years. yes yes he talks about how long they held on to alex's body and that yes the defense because they were just I don't even want to just poking and prodding and treating it as just evidence to build a case and not showing any sort of degree of respect for his family and allowing them to lay him to rest. And he talks about how, like, in his entire career of law enforcement, he had never seen something so poorly handled as what they did with keeping his body so long and that he requested the judge give Ezra 60 years because that was how many days they held on to Alex's body before they released it to the family and that is heinous especially because there was no question that she did it so what are you looking for that I don't know whatever yeah I completely agree with him completely agree Finally, we think it's very important after such a sensational case where the horror of the crime and our hatred of the killer can overshadow the most important person in the story, Alex. We want to leave you guys with a story from Alex's life that was written in a letter given to his parents at Alex's memorial service from a man whom they did not even know. The letter said that this man had a son who would regularly go into Racy's coffee shop where Alex worked. The two of them struck up a friendship, and the young man ended up confiding in Alex that he had been suffering from thoughts of wanting to end his own life. Alex, over the course of several conversations, was actually able to talk this young man out of it and pointed him towards resources that ended up helping him tremendously in the long run to get the help that he so desperately needed. The father of this young man wanted Alex's parents to know that his son was alive because of Alex, because this was the kind of person that Alex was, deeply kind, perceptive, and eager to help those around him even if it was just someone who had came into the coffee shop. He was the complete and total opposite in every way of the person who so selfishly took his life. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of self-harm, please know that there is an abundance of free resources at your fingertips to get you or your loved one through whatever you may be going through. You can text the word CONNECT in all caps to 741-741. That's the word CONNECT in all caps to 741-741 right now to be immediately connected to free 24-7 crisis counseling and access to ongoing resources. You are not alone. Ezra is currently incarcerated at the Teichida Correctional Institution in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and she makes shitty artwork that her mom tries to sell for her on Instagram. To fund her appeals, 
because she still claims to be the victim in all of this. Alex Woodworth currently rests in Dresser, Wisconsin, at the Peace Lutheran Church Cemetery. (sighs) There you have it, guys. guys. Go hug a puppy or something. (laughs) As always, let us know what you guys thought of the case. Um, Yeah. That's it. Yeah. There's not much to say. This was really a doozy, and this one has really bothered me in ways that, uh-huh. I mean, every case bothers me, but some just pierce you in a different way because I have a brother like Alex who's has a beautiful mind, who's incredibly intelligent, kind, and empathetic, and the thought that somebody could be taken advantage of by somebody so manipulative just the pure evil that ezra is yeah is yeah and i hope truly that she is miserable every day in prison and i hope that she never has peace so that's all all, folks is there anything else we need to tell the people about i know we've talked about our turning hearts affiliate sponsor and we will link them in the show notes uh, because we're going to continue to talk about them because they're awesome and you can find all of the information about our awesome turning heart sponsor and our other things we have uh started to put out there for you guys like our amazon storefront uh, with all of our little thingies in it for mm-hmm. personal protection mm-hmm. <laughs> that we are definitely going to be gifting yep. each other for the Christmas. things that I don't so already have if you want to do the same need. right right a, a lot of this shit we already have <laughs> but other than that but yeah we're at just two we're, hours <laughs> that's pretty much it <laughs> so with that bye bye